Hello, hello, beautiful human. Welcome to Shit You Don't Want to Talk About. This is a podcast where we turn shit you don't want to talk about into shit to talk about. As a reminder, all of the views of our guests are their own. They do not necessarily represent those of the host, Jen Janod, or of the podcast, Shit You Do Not Want to Talk About. Please support us on Patreon or PayPal, help share the show, and if not, you know, keep showing up, loving us, it is all up to you. Stay tuned for a dope episode of Expanding Your Mind, yet always make sure that you keep track of what you need, and if anything is triggering, take a step back, skip this episode. If you're curious if this is going to be triggering or not, feel free to check the episode description. Much love. Hello, hello, beautiful humans. Welcome back to another episode of Teach Gen Tech. Teach Gen Tech. Y'all, that's my other show. It happens. It is like literally the first time I was doing that show. I couldn't even handle because I kept saying, welcome to shit you don't want to talk about. Now I'm doing the opposite. This is great. Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to shit you don't want to talk about. And today we have Matt here on the show. And Matt, please introduce yourself and the shit you want to talk about today. Hey, Jen. Yeah, as you said, my name is Matt. I'm definitely glad we're not talking tech because that is not my strong suit. However, I am here to talk about my journey to a healthy, vibrant, alcohol-free life. I like how you say vibrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I And I... I really appreciated like our intro call. I don't even know when we did it a while ago because we talked about like still even being able to be around people that drink and like being able to like have that balance. I, I would say like, as a, like, it's of course not the end point whenever we're talking about like where you're at now, because you know, Tomorrow, everything could change to something else that you're interested in, you know? That's how humans evolve. Yet, how did you get on, like, why did you decide or discover to go to an alcohol-free life? Yeah, you know, yeah, great opening question. Um, You know, a lot of different reasons, you know? So, I'll look at it in different phases. So, I, you know... Dating back to when the, the reason I used it in the first place, you know, I was a very shy kid growing up and in my teenage years, very shy around girls, even in groups of people, I never felt like I quite fit in to a mold. So I was, I would use like a people pleasing type, you know, type thing, like a chameleon essentially, right? So I could kind of fit in with the group and I never quite felt like I fit in. So I'd be, you know, friends with all the, you know, the, the archetypes of high school, the nerds, the band people, the, you know, the, the, the jocks, the, uh, the rebels and all that. And I'd be kind of on the outskirts of every group, but I truly didn't feel like I fit in. And the reason I would do that was to just kind of keep myself off the radar. I had been exposed to some bullying when I was in grade eight. I was just a really short, small kid. I hadn't hit a growth spurt till about grade nine. So I was just this really small kid and, and shy, as I mentioned. And my parents had gone through a divorce right as I started grade eight. So I had a bit of a tumultuous like home life that I wasn't used to because I'd had sort of a pretty sheltered upbringing up till that point. And then it was just like my world blew up. So usually where I could go home and just feel like myself, home was very, very different. So I didn't have this feeling of safety that I, I did before. And I was just very stunned and confused. So, you know, 
that led me to uh initially i was doing um sports as like an outlet and, and to help me you know kind of work through uh some of this this energetic uh stuff that i was going through uh, but i found i was way too emotional for sports i was super competitive with myself still am and i would just if things didn't go my way i get just batshit crazy basically i'd like almost tear right. up right and it's like i'd be good in practice but as soon as there was the added pressure of the game i would get very worked up so i pivoted into music so with music came you know the glorification of like you know weed smoking and drinking you know i started reading uh biographies on you know led zeppelin and all these bands like this that are just it's all about just chaos and just Mm -hmm. copious amounts of drugs alcohol and everything so of course i was like i modeled that behavior as best i could so that's what i got into it and i found the alcohol really allowed me or i perceived it allowed me to come out of my shell i could talk to people at parties and uh so that's what i used it for was uh, i i felt that i tapped into like the real me that was my perception of it at the time you know, and um, as I went through my 20s, uh, the usage increased to a point I was a daily drinker. And there was definitely a point, I want to say around 27, I put myself in the hospital for uh, acute pancreatitis, incredibly painful. And it was uh, off of a, a really rough weekend of, of binge drinking. And I was in the hospital for three days. And I remember um, that was the first time I really had this voice in my head going, okay, like, party's over, you're done. Like, and I was even you know, looking up at the, uh, looking up at the lights in, in the hospital going, okay, like if I get out of here, like praying to whatever God mm -hmm. or universe, uh, you know, I believed in at that time, you know, I've always been fairly spiritual, but at that time I was a little bit, you know, angry 27 year old. Right. So a little bit, um, you know, not so much into like religion, organized religion and such either way. I just remember like just doing the, like, if I get out of here, I've, I've learned my lesson, like just please like I've, uh, and then you know long story short at 24 hours after getting out of there my addict brain started negotiating with me going you know that was like hard alcohol that did that to you just cut out the hard alcohol you've never been a beer drinker beer will never put you back in the hospital you're a beer drinker now so within 24 hours of getting out of the hospital oh. i completely broke my you know my pact with myself in the universe i had a beer in my hand I'm like yeah this will be fine beer's harmless nobody's ever done anything bad on beer and you know, continue that pattern for a while. Uh, but that was a turning point for me, as you can imagine, being in the hospital and, and just realizing that there is some pretty serious circumstances that are, could be just waiting around the corner for me. You know, I always liken it to, you know, the universe gives people taps. I was getting a lot of taps on the shoulder and then that one was like a big smack in the back of the head. And I was kind of like, hmm, and I still didn't listen, right? Or I, I partially, partially listened. So by the time I was 30, I had my first three-year alcohol-free stint. I had a, a just a very distinct rock-bottom moment, and we can get into that later if, if, if it comes up. And, um, and that was my first stage where I was like, okay, I do have to change here. There's like the party is over, you know, and that's three years after the, uh, the hospital visit. And that was great. That was the first time I really got into the idea of like self-development and self-growth. Like obviously I was naturally you know, leveling up at different aspects of my life up to that point. But that was the first time I was like actively pursuing it in books, like getting into Wayne Dyer and, you know, audiobooks and like learning about like, you know, changing your mindset and such. So that was a great, wonderful experience. I'd gotten into like AA at that time and, and just realizing the power of like connection and community and uh, not feeling so by myself and actually feeling yeah. like I'm starting to belong in things, right? 
so that was the first taste of okay there is life outside of using this you know substance as a coping mechanism so that's leading to the answer to the question i that was the first taste enough that that first three years sober alcohol free that i had that you know everything was going great and at that stage you know i was i was leveling up i was getting promoted at work um you know i got my band got a ten thousand dollar grant uh to record a professional album so all these things were happening to me there were signals like ah yes you've cleaned up your act and now you're going to be getting you know these things Mm -hmm. as as a result and then you know my ego kind of like overtook this new spiritual side that i discovered about myself and my ego stepped in and that was like the uh you know when it kind of the attic brain piped up which had been dormant for three years at that point and said you know what i think you're cured you got this you can go back out and you can you can try drinking like a normal person again and then that was my next three plus years trying literally any type of moderation attempt or like you know deal with myself and just breaking them all within 24 hours usually and you know just getting so incredibly fed up with that you know Mm -hmm. uh towards the end and then so that was that was really what did it for me was um you know by that time it was like 37 by the time i I decided, okay, enough is enough for, for good. And that's what the current uh, sobriety stint that I'm on right now, you know, and that was based on, we, again, we can get, uh, get into the story if, uh, if it comes up um, as to why it was like my dad passed away uh, a couple of days before Christmas, 2018. And he was a, a big drinker his entire life, you know, and at age 66 to, to die at age 66 nowadays, you know, that's a pretty young age in, in yeah. my opinion nowadays so that's uh that really had a big effect on me and that is you know sort of the reason outside of myself to continue on with the uh the living the alcohol free life and yeah so that was that's kind of the backstory as to like the why behind it mm-hmm. and just all the like the warning signs and chances i had to change and you know <laughs> and how i attempted to change and then finally committed to it And thank you for that explanation. A a few things that come to mind for me is I've heard of um, a lot of people can have the mindset of um, competing with their trauma. Like Mm. your trauma is worse than mine. My trauma is worse than yours or downplaying what they were going through. Like, oh, well, it's not that bad. So I don't need therapy or anything like that. And I appreciate the way you started the telling us about your past because having a, just trying to fit in anywhere can be very, very difficult. B, like having it where I felt very similar in school. Like I, um, there is a terminology for it called uh, under the social social capital theory, and mm. there's social bridgers, and bridgers are normally the people that go between different crowds and okay. connect people in those crowds. So they're always like on the edge of everybody's space instead of like in one space. And I was just like, "That's a thing. That's me." Totally. Um, yeah. Because it it also makes it if you're going through all of these spaces nobody's missing you if you're gone because they think that you're just off in one of your other spaces. So I definitely can relate to that feeling of just feeling so alone because I've, I've thought people wouldn't notice me if I did go anywhere. 
and how you talk about that your parents go through a divorce and like home's no longer your safety. It's something that I don't know if a lot of people really think about, especially if they're like in a, a stable home right now, is if we do not have our bare necessities met. So I'm talking food, water, clothing, utilities, you know, like shower, toilet, um, you know, like just a safe home. It's not just pretty, but like a safe home where people are getting along, things like that. It can cause a lot of like uh, turmoil without it fully being registered. So it can cause mm. more trauma, even though it's not necessarily a big one-time trauma type thing. It's something that will build up that is underlying that we don't always realize. And it it is so relatable when you talk about that going into um, music that you started drinking a ton too. I know for myself when I was in my late teens, I was drinking a shit ton like, and I did really stupid stuff because I felt like, um, I would never be loved those type of things. Like I drank to try to fit in, to be who they wanted me to be. Mm. And the guy that I dated, he was like the, uh, what, how do you say it? Like the person everybody wanted to talk to and go to, like he was the popular right. guy and which was really cool, but everyone else wanted his attention so I felt like I didn't get enough attention and that I wasn't worthy for it. So I would do, I don't even want to name what I drank and did, uh, but I would end up making out with someone or doing something that I honestly, to this day, don't remember. Mm. And I really want to mention these because there are underlying issues that if we don't address them, we don't realize them, they can cause the addictions that we want to use to cover them up mm. and you you talk about that you uh when you were 27 you hit, hit your first stint of not drinking mm -hmm. and uh for clarification y'all i do still drink um it's only been in the last couple years that i have found my moderation and found how to I guess you could say properly drink. Um, I say it like that because I was always someone that would drink a shit ton very, very quickly mm -hmm. and to try to catch up, to try to keep up with being the party, you know, the life of the party. And then I would be shit faced crying in the corner about something. I'm not, I was always the crier. It was never like I was a fun drunk. I was the mm. crier. And I mention this because I have myself have debated going completely off of alcohol. I've had friends that have done it too. And it is such a personal choice and journey. Mm. Yet for many people, I've seen that it's so hard to do it by themselves, especially if their friends are out partying and stuff yeah. or even going to dinner you know, if you if your friends aren't in the party realm anymore. Yet 
when you said when you were 27 that you went to the hospital and you were, you know, you could say sober for three days and then went back to beer drinking, how, like, what were, was everyone else around you doing? Because for myself, I think I made it worse for myself because no one else was drinking, like doing shots. And I would do shots when they're drinking beer, you know, Mm. for example, like, so I was causing it to be harder on myself than let's say peer pressure was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you for, uh, for sharing your like drinking experience too, because, uh, you know, I great to get like just uh, that, um, you know, that reflection back and uh, having your, you reflect on your, you know, drinking experience as well. So thanks for sharing. Yeah. For me, uh, you know, yeah. Context is everything. Environment is everything. So I went back to, you know, my girlfriend at the time, who was actually my current fiance. Now uh, we did have a two year gap where we, uh, where we weren't together. Uh, but we were we were like the party couple, right? That's that's what brought us together. Uh, that was again, that was how I was able to have the courage, quote unquote, to talk to to the opposite sex was was having some drinks because otherwise, even into my adulthood, I was still painfully shy. And um, yeah, so that was about we were about so if I was twenty seven, probably been about three years into our relationship, we'd lived together the whole time. It was a party house, right? It was a, like my band lived in, in the basement, like the, the drummer did anyways. And another one of my best friends lived downstairs. So I was partying literally every day. Uh, so when I came home, there was a concern and there was a, okay, we'll do whatever we need to do to support Matt. Uh, but then as soon as I had the beer in my hand, you know, the initial it's like shock and there's like a pause. And then when I say, hey, it's all good. And then explain basically what, how my head explained it to me. Everybody's like, yeah. oh, wicked Matt's back, right? So there was a concern. I'm not going to say that they were like sad that the, the drinking Matt was potentially gone and they'd have to clean up or it would reflect back on them or however it would end up. Um, it never got to that stage. And then there was a, a pause, a kind of, are you sure? And I said, yeah. And they're like, whoa, per-, but you know, back to party time, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where it was. And, um, you know, I, I just straight up lied to my family. Like they knew I went to the hospital, but I had some mm. bullshit excuse about like I was, you know, mixed. I had some like, um, was different vitamins or something. I said, like I had these supplements I have, I, I'm not used to taking. And I think I had an energy drink, you know, some BS, right? Uh, all they had to do was Google it and, and realize like acute pancreatitis is from drinking alcohol. Right. So, oh, but wow. nobody okay. called, nobody called me out on my, my BS. And, um, I just, I thought it was like I dodged a bullet. I told everybody I was in the hospital. I did, I was not forthcoming as to why, uh, not fully forthcoming. And yeah, then it was back to to party party central, right? And and you know I I learned how to navigate like you know that swelling, that kind of pulsation that would happen in my body when I got too close, and I would just stop drinking for the night. You know I go mm-hmm. lay down in bed, and then just hope that you know that pain that was kind of creeping up to like a two or three wouldn't all of a sudden decide to go full bore and go back up to the eight or 10. And then I have to go back to the hospital. So I was, I had numerous nights where I would just like drink right to my threshold, kind of start feeling it in my body that, okay, it is time to, I gotta, I gotta wind things down. And you know, that's how I continued on for, you know, years after that. I, 
when you're explaining, like when you came home from the hospital, it almost makes me think of how society has made partying, especially when you think about like high school or college shows like American Pie, all of those that it's like you, uh, somebody falls and then they get back up and go, I'm okay. I'm okay. And everybody cheers because they're like, oh, they're fine. You know, we can still party. Like nothing bad happened. And there's like this huge misconception that nothing bad can happen, but Mm. I truly, truly can. Like, Mm -hmm. especially if we don't know our limits, if we, um, you know, uh, because our, we're so impaired that we may go with people that are not safe, that are Mm. like, there's, there's a lot of dangers out there uh, other than, you know, the win of feeling good, which is just like, so interesting to think about that in an abstract instead of like, when I go have my glass of wine, you know, like, it's like this very different mentality. Now, do you think that it was partially getting older in age that made you want to at 27 or was it like you know I got sick I went back to beer and then when your father died that was like what you were like oh shit like this isn't the life for me like what yeah. do you have like an idea or was it like a yeah. build-up it was yeah so it was a build-up I had an idea though like I mentioned there was there was definitely some um there was a, a voice of reason in my head that, um, you know, was kind of whispering to me before that whole thing when I put myself in the hospital. And then it became a very prominent voice, right? I guess there's like the devil and the angel on your shoulder type thing. There's mm-hmm. the devil, of course, being the, the attic brain. And then the angel was starting to very strongly advocate for me pulling the plug on the whole drinking thing, right? So that voice very much got turned up as well. Uh, so then it's kind of this conflicting, I was definitely at an inner war with myself, um, when I wasn't drinking. And then of course, as soon as I am drinking, it's, it, you know, both those voices kind of just fade away. Right. Which is the idea of, of why I was drinking in the first place. So yeah, uh, I'll, I'll two part it. So like the first one, that first sober, uh, alcohol free stint between 30 and 33. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I didn't think of it, I felt terrified by or like overwhelmed or like it was very contracting to feel like, you know, I could never drink again. Right. So Mm -hmm. I knew I couldn't drink for a while. And I was doing the whole AA one day at a time thing. So that's what I was doing initially. And just everything else in my life was really uh, coming, just coming for me, like the universe was co collaborate, like collaborating with me, co creating with me, and it was amazing feeling. So I just kept going with that. You know, and uh, at the state at that stage, I still had a lot to learn, though. You know, it's it's important uh, distinction to make at that time. What I did is I just started going to the gym every day. So I did mm. the replacing one addiction with another, and not getting to and you touched on it earlier. It's like not getting into the why. Like why was there this addiction in the first place? So, you know, there is an in certain. Um, you know, recovery modalities that they say, like, you know, don't replace an addiction with another. Mm-hmm. And I say, if it's a healthier addiction, and it gets you from stopping drinking, which it did for me, I, that was the best thing I could have done at that time. That's not to say that you, you don't have to then do the inner work after that. Mm-hmm. But initially, if you can stop, if you can switch one addiction, that's a negative for your health and everything mm-hmm. else, and switch it into something positive, 
I think there's there is definitely some room for that. So that's what I did initially. And, uh, you know, it was like, well, how would I verbalize it? It's like more of the yang energy. It's like getting out there, doing more, getting more motivated, like achieving mm -hmm. more. Right. And that was big for me in the third, in my early thirties. And that worked. Uh, and then uh, fast forward to the part two, after I tried all this moderation, went back in, tried these different moderation techniques, realizing that like nothing I do is going to work. I just, I, I'm not a normal mm -hmm. drinker and that's fine. Well, it's fine now. Definitely wasn't fine at the time. Uh, you know, uh, so, and then the whole thing with my dad, that was, and, you know, coupling with like, to your, to your point, the age, by the time I'm 37, I'm like, okay, all right. I'm not, when I was 30, there was still like that 2% of me that I, like, I left the door open just a crack. And I mm -hmm. knew at some point I was going to go, I needed to peek in there. And I did. Right. So then as a result, I was being very secretive about my, uh, my sobriety, um, I would always just have some like bogus excuse. Like when I went to play, uh, you know, a show, people would be giving me a beer and I'd just be like, no, nah, you know, after the show, like it, it, it hurts my vocal cords or just some BS. Right. And then by the time I was finished the set, I knew that everybody was going to be nice and nice and loaded and then forget that I wasn't drinking. Or I'd be like, oh, you know, do the whole, like, I ah, just, I'm not feeling well. Like I'm on antibiotics or something like that. Right. So I never straight up just said, Hey, I'm not a drinker anymore. Right. Because mm -hmm. I didn't want to. Yeah, again, like the people pleasing thing. I didn't want to disappoint, quote unquote, anybody, right? Yeah. Or make them feel bad about themselves because they, they're seeing me and then they internalize it. You know what I mean? So I was doing all that kind of stuff. That was part one. And then so by the second time, you know, yeah, older, uh, the whole thing with my dad definitely rattled me, knowing that I was on the same path as him. I had an uncle, Paul, who was on uh, my mom's side that died at like 56 from complications of drinking, heavy drinkers. Well, oh, wow. So both sides of my family. And I'm on the same, you know, that same road. And I'm just like, mm -hmm. nah, this, <laughs> I can't do this anymore, right? And so that's what it was. The dad, the dad thing was a wake-up call. He passed away right before Christmas. His celebration of life was in April, April 2019. And I had my, uh, just again, one of these things that is just, it's perfect how it worked out. I had this like really sloppy party weekend that you know, all the greatest hits, cocaine, you know, uh, beer, hard liquor, cigarettes for some reason, even though I hadn't smoked in like seven years, all that garbage, right? And, uh, you know, I stayed up to like four or five in the morning the day before I had to drive eight hours to go to a celebration Ugh. of life. And it was just like, I woke up and. And I always leave like the hair of the dog, right? The the one beer that I can have the next day to to uh, like, you know, make myself feel somewhat normal. I guess mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know what I was going for there. And I got about halfway through, and I was just like, "What the hell am I doing?" I just dumped it and threw it in the garbage, hopped in the car, and uh, halfway between my hometown, which is Prince George, British Columbia, and Edmonton, where I currently live, is a, a rocky mountain town called Jasper, and it's like one of the most beautiful quaint little mountain towns uh, i just love it I've, I've been there since i was a young young boy so driving through there was always a thrill for me and i just felt empty and it was mm -hmm. a bright sunny day and i'm just like what is going on here like this is yeah just surreal at this point and so i, mean, I just grabbed my cell phone and just i needed to get that energy moving because it was getting really dark and um you know, I just, I had some suicidal ideation and, uh, I was just letting it come. And I just realized as I was saying, it, like, man, this is <laughs> not, not where I want to be. And that's where I just had, I just had this massive shift. And I, mm -hmm. I realized, you know, I'm going to do this as a, like a living tribute to my dad 
that's where I'm headed right now. So I'm, I just did a complete 180 and I, I shouldn't say I, I felt like I was very much guided and there was something that, that touched me that day. And at that time, and just, uh, gave me a, gave, gave me a help. Cause I was definitely at my, at a rock bottom and, um, yeah, and that's that's how it was. So the rest of the drive, I was focused more on the solution. Okay, what am I going to do? I've been here before. I can do this again, right? Having like a lot more positive self-talk, switching, getting like that energy back instead of this dark, dense, like stagnant, stuck energy. It just completely transformed. And uh, yeah, I remember I picked up my brother at the airport and we hadn't been home together in like 20 years at that point. Uh, my dad and my my older brother had had a bit of a falling out, so they hadn't talked in about 11 years, and they'd never actually got the chance to resolve it before dad passed. So mm. it was an emotional time for my brother as well. And yeah, so we just went around like some of the old neighborhoods we hadn't been to, and it was just this huge healing experience that we had. And, you know, the coupling of like just being that so disturbed and like the feeling of like a tribute to my dad. And, you know, it's all the way down his lineage. Like his dad was a drinker, my grandpa, my great-grandpa all the way down as far as we know, heavy drinkers. So I just felt like it was like, okay, I have a chance to like dissolve this like ancestral pattern of mm -hmm. drinking that keeps getting passed down and it can stop with me. And that feel, felt very empowering. You know, part of me is like, am I being like egotistical by doing this? And I was like, no, it's, it's like the opposite of that. So it's, it's, it's funny, that's what my brain thought of though. I'm like, well, who am I to do that, right? But like, then I was like, who, who's that, whose voice is that saying that? you know, kind of one of those things. Um, yeah, that's where it was. So like just the, the disturbed with the reason to do it for my dad. And then the beautiful experience that we had after that, I, I knew it was like, after that week, I felt like I'd already been alcohol free for like months. It was just, again, we talked, like I talked about earlier context, uh, the context of that, you know, had I just tried to decide to do that, like, and I was still at home, I don't think it would have taken, right? And I needed to be all of those series of events that just kind of happened at the mm -hmm. same time. And that just launched me forward into, you know, what I'm doing today. And I appreciate you uh, breaking that down a bit more. Something that I've experienced in seeing with um, those who have been addicts in my own life. Um, of, and it can be like a couple together that is the party couple or their addicts together. They are, can be very, very toxic to each other because they know how to get away with things or push each other's buttons. You know, there's, there's a lot to go into it. And yet, you know, you hear uh, these stories about how going apart, both getting sober does allow coming together. Um, and I know that I'm just like, naming off random things that are coming to my mind on this mm. i'm curious how this worked for you and your fiance since you mm. said that you were together a bit before your first time getting sober yeah thanks for the opportunity to talk about this actually it's not too often that i get to to bring her up and our story so that's uh, fantastic thank you yeah so darcy and i yeah, like i said they're definitely the party couple for sure that's what brought us together you know and um we ended up deciding because we got together so young and we basically were for, not forced but it seemed like the best thing the easiest thing to do was just move in together right away and, mm -hmm. and i was fine with that and she was fine with that so it was great but it really didn't give us a lot of time to like we never did the full like you know uh there was no romanticism behind it like we didn't get to really date like we just kind of like ah, slammed okay. into our relationship and it was great because like we got along so well but we yeah. missed that whole 
you know, romantic side of it. And that gets missed or did get missed for us with the, just the substances. It was all about partying. So it was like, we weren't even concerned about that at the time. You know, but yeah. it's hindsight, you look back, you're like, I kind of wish we did get to do that. And we did. So I'll get to that. So that was how it's all started. Uh, we decided, you know, um, yeah, a few things happened where we both, it was apparent that we needed to see other people. We'll, we'll put it that way. And so we did, we decided mutually that we were going to um, have some time apart so we could get these this out of our system, just because again, we get together so early and under the guise that we were going to get back together. And uh, you know, that's, as you can imagine, throw some substances in there. That's a pretty challenging thing to try and navigate. And it was, and that was where I, um, I tapped out and I was like, yeah, no, this is not going quite as I was hoping it was. And mm -hmm. my drinking was out of control and I really, really missed her. And, 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 um, yeah, uh, that's when I sobered up the first time that, the when I was 30 and then independent of me, that's when we stopped talking all together, like nothing, not an email, no anything. And curiously enough, she sobered up independent of me. So I was three years, uh, sober, I would say probably about two years in, uh, to the three year stint. And then she was a year, full year into it. So something happened with her mom, uh, was diagnosed with cancer. So, uh, mm. it was enough for her to go, okay, I'm getting calls from mom and she needs me at different times. And I'm not able to be there for her because I'm so effed up all the time. So that was her like, okay, I got to grow up a bit here. And she did. Right. So, and it was just amazing. So the million dollar question for us was like, <laughs> Are we going to find each other like super boring? Cause we've never really basically never hung out together without being like buzzed or like on our way to being buzzed. Right. So I was kind of like, Hmm, interesting. So we came back into each other's lives. And as it turns out, it was like a much more healthy, beautiful thing. There's so much more nuance and depth and we didn't find each other boring. In fact, the opposite. And it was just like, we got along famously and it was such a rad experience, you know, to know that, um, that that was waiting for us on the other side of this, like, you know, we were very codependent and, you know, like the substances and such and to grow sort of apart and then grow into these independent people and then come back on the other side, which is what we wanted to do in the first place, but just on a different timeline, right? The universe brought us back together and it was, yeah, beautiful. So then I started dating her. I started asking her out and, and uh, yeah, I'm going to get emotional. Uh, so yeah, give me a second here. Yeah. And then, so, you know, and that's how it happened. So we got to do the whole dating process and it was kind of fun and cute and all that. And, and, uh, yeah, you know, after a couple of years of that was, it was actually me being a knucklehead decided I was like, you know, everything's going great. She's getting promoted at work. I'm getting promoted. We're about to move back in together. And I'm like, you know, what would really enhance this if we had a few drinks? So mm. it was me and, uh, you know, it was, I, this is where when I was talking about the moderation, the attempts at moderation, uh, this is where this comes in. It's an important, uh, thing to unpack. So give me a few minutes if you, if you will, uh, just for people that are listening. So I started off with it by going, okay, we never drank cider before. So if we do like cider, I kind of did the whole beer thing again with cider though. Mm -hmm. Right. She's like, yeah, fair enough. I, yeah, let's go do that then. So that was kind of my like negotiation of it. Cause she was a little bit hesitant. Mm -hmm. So we went and did cider. That was just a one and done. And we sat on it for a couple of weeks. And then two weeks later I was, we were kind of like, yeah, you know, we got some extra time tonight. Let's, let's go get some cider again. And then before you know it, it's like a weekly thing. And then, so we're starting to put uh, parameters on it. So we go, okay, well, hmm, this is getting weekly again. So let's just do it. So 
only on weekends. Okay, fair enough. So as soon as we've allowed weekends, every weekend turns into like a four-day weekend. We're like, okay, now this isn't working. How about no drinks at home? We'll only go out to drink. Uh, then we start going out to drink, out uh, like four or five times a week. And we're spending money on food as well, just ballooning mm -hmm. out like bills and just wasting money and just getting, you know, uh, less healthy and fat and everything, right? It's like the, the beer, empty calories and the salty food of pubs. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and then so we're like, okay, now this isn't working either. Okay, uh, what else can we do? And, you know, I just kind of kept going down the, the line of these different negotiations and attempts at moderation. Nothing worked. And I dare say that it was probably worse that we did this because it was like the binge drinking. We'd go four or five days without it. And then when we got to do it, it'd be like 12 or 14 or 15 each right Ugh. and then waking up hungover yeah. and be like oh the only thing that's going to solve this is more beer right and um oh yeah that was the other funny one it's worth mentioning i was like you know what like before i was drinking like the lucky lager it's like the crappiest cheap beer right and i was like you know what i'm like i'm gonna everybody's talking about craft beer and there's like this local brewery so i'm gonna be supporting local right these justifications they've just become a little more uh, I guess wise or in my opinion refined or my opinion at the time more refined right like I'm supporting a local business right yeah like these types of it's just nonsense but like you know that was the 35 year old version of me and my justifications and how they like evolved right so it's worth mentioning to anybody that has like problems with addiction that that will happen as you get older as you get wiser so will your justifications and your ability to to negotiate with yourself or you know mm -hmm. uh with the with the addict side of the brain so yeah and then you know here we are uh we've sort we 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 acknowledge that we had that two-year gap but uh with the two years if we just count that in there if it's like the full body of us being together it's 17 years uh this month in september here actually so you know uh 15 of 17 years is is a pretty darn good run and yeah, uh, she, same thing, pretty much very parallel to the first time. She was about a year behind me uh, sobering up, which was challenging. Don't get me wrong, you know, this past time. Uh, so I'm a little bit over three years now and she's a little bit over two years. So, and yeah, things are amazing. I think the only thing that's ever really come in between us has been when there's drinking, especially if one of us is doing it and the other one isn't because then there's just, it really throws off the energy. So yeah, that first year that she uh, was having a hard time saying goodbye to it, and I was very firm about not doing it. There was definitely some uh, some some things to work out and work through, uh, and now it's just yeah, it's it's an amazing thing. And man, she's such a um, just a massive part of my life, and it's great, you know, because like I said, there was we were codependent before, but we're very much two independent people that choose to be together, and that's like a huge difference, as you can imagine. Yeah, definitely. And I, I love how you mentioned that because it's like, how do you break that codependent cycle or that addiction cycle? And, um, you know, also trust in yourself if you're getting away from people that are, um, have addiction cycles near you. I, I would say, um, I, I know that we're going to, like make sure that we covered everything here shortly, but something that's really sticking with me is, do you have any suggestions on how to walk away from those that are bad influences on you? Mm, yeah, such an important question. Yeah, this is, 
these are two things, two questions that often came up throughout my, you know, even mulling over becoming alcohol free and my, my first stages of alcohol free. The, the one being the, the whole, Oh, I can never drink again the rest of my life. Like just backing it off from that finalized statement to go, no, I, I will not drink today. Let's just break it down a little bit. And then the second one being, do I have to change all my friends now? Like, do I have to, mm-hmm. and you know, and that's, that, that can be um, frightening for, for a lot of people. And, and we had talked about how, like how many social situations and gatherings are either based around or have the enhancement of, of drinking. And so, yeah, that's, you know, there's no easy answer. I can just say what I did. And it's, um, there's still a lot of people that I have, have love for and I just I have slowly lessened the time I spend with them you mm-hmm. know it's in and it's um it's about boundaries like for me if I there's a few people that like I will engage in conversation with them you know the next day because I know the pattern if, if it's like 10 p.m and there's two people I can think of right off the bat and I'm getting text messages from them around that time on a Friday or Saturday, mm-hmm. I have a safe bet. I'd say like 99.9% sure they're inebriated. So I will not engage in any kind of conversation with them at that stage. And that's my choice. Um, and that's no diss to them or anything. It's my boundary. I, 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 I'm not going to cross that, right? So, you know, and then if I feel like it, I'm going to do it on my terms the following day. You know, yeah, this whole thing is like, it, it is... Yeah, I understand why it's such a challenge. That's what I've been doing. I've, I've just been slowly removing myself from situations um, that don't align with my values and, and with who I am. Uh, having said that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, I don't, I choose not to uh, judge them, right? Uh, or or explain to them, like, I don't want to give the impression that I think I'm better than them or, or anything like mm-hmm. that. It's, it has nothing to do with it, right? It is just simply a, a different... Uh, you know, lifestyle choice right and mm-hmm. i still have nothing but love for these people um but yeah and it is challenging i can understand where where um where that is the case but i think it's easier than than what most people would think is is what i want i really want to get to is is um you know just realizing that if you come up with your boundaries and your reason and your why that you have this, this uh lifestyle change or this mindset change um you don't really need to justify it to anybody else. If you feel that and that's the way that you're going to interact and you have those healthy boundaries and those values set up and as part of your system and you live through that lens, just naturally those people will, will tend to drift away. And it doesn't have to be this dramatic, you know, confrontation where you're just like, eh, you know, it doesn't, it, yeah. I mean, that's my experience with it. And, you know, um, you know, just being, still being able to be there for it. Cause like part of being unconditionally, a friend with those people means I'm being unconditional with myself, which is something I've recently learned, right? It's been very challenging for me, Jen. It's been, you know, I, I learned from both my parents, but specifically my dad, like, um, like a conditional love, right? It's, um, mm-hmm. you know, you have to meet these conditions, uh, for you to be significant, for me to be significant or for to me to feel properly loved. So a lot of my patterns over the, my, from a childhood onto my adult life has been achieving because if I don't achieve something, I don't feel like I'm going to be loved. 
And if mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm loved, I'm going to be rejected. And that's like my core fear is like fear of rejection. And this is just something I've uncovered in the last like year, right? And here I am 40 mm-hmm. years old. So, you know, um, yeah, that's for the question for sure. It's just, uh, it, just, just realize it, it is challenging, but stick close to your values, your boundaries, know why you have them and live through that as your lens. And the people that are, you know, meant to stay in your life that are curious, who knows, that could be the flip side where you have something, I have had this, where somebody's like, you know, tell me a little bit more about like this alcohol-free life. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's like, boom, you've connected on such a deeper level. So there's a little bit of both in there too, right? So remember, it's not always going to be people leaving your life. There's going to be enhancements of existing relationships and people will surprise you as well. And thank you for saying that. It's definitely something that, I think happens not only in wanting to break away from toxicity or addiction, it also happens when you have a mindset change Mm. that even if you have all the same people around you, that if they don't agree with the person that you're becoming, so many of them will lash out and break up with you, even as friends uh, there, I feel like there's such thing as a friend breakup. Mm-hmm. And some of them will just stay stagnant, you know, you just move on. And some will change with you, you'll inspire them to change with you. And that can be like, in any, like, um, that's not a significant timeline, like somebody that was angry with you, two years ago could have changed with you from your influence and down the road you reconnect and see that they're doing really good in their life. It's such a difficult road, especially when it's your family, your significant other, your parents, your children. This really does affect everyone around you. Mm. And Matt, I, I know we're starting the wrap up. Is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you specifically wanted to touch on? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Jen. Um, yeah, one thing that comes to mind is, uh, you know, we, we hinted at it throughout uh, our conversation here, is, is definitely, the, you know, putting the focus on what you do want versus, you know, what you no longer get to do or have the yeah. fear of missing out, right? Which is, you know, it's, that is almost a for me, it's like a, a reactionary thing is like, you know, and that's a lower vibrational thing for me, but it's just, um, I, I think it might have something to do with like a survival thing, or it's based out of that core fear that I talked about. Fear of rejection is, oh shoot, like, what am I not getting to do now? Or like, if I'm mm-hmm. not drinking, that means I'm not, you know, uh, talking to that person and what are they, you know, and getting into this real like low vibrational way of, of being versus just acknowledging, okay, so let's just put that away for now and let's focus on what do I now get to do, right? So mm-hmm. taking a statement of negation of I don't get to drink, so but I do get to, and then fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. So if the easiest one is to go back to my first sobriety statement, like, but I do get to go to the gym, right? Something that was right. in my periphery the whole time growing up. I'm like, man, I'd really like to, like I was an athlete at one point. I'd love to get back in the gym. It's kind of one of those things that just clashed so badly with my party lifestyle. Oh, it's not a good look when you're all hung over going to the gym, right? And uh, yeah, I just never did. Uh, so, uh, you know, having that energy, just kind of pushing that away and go, okay, I do get to go to the gym now. And mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying that. 
And then, you know, before you know it, that's the type of energy that you're attracting, that you're putting out there, that you're feeling, that you're embodying. And then all of a sudden you have these, like, all these, like, the coincidences and synchronicities and all these types of things line up, which Mm -hmm. is conversely exactly what happens if you do it on the other side of things. If you continue to perpetuate that uh, statements of negation and things that you don't get to do, all you're doing is putting that out there and you're going to get more of that, right? So it's kind of like the don't think about the pink elephant. You think about the pink elephant. Okay, let's just (laughs) cancel that. Let's just think about something completely different. And so just really put your focus on that and you're going to feel like even me gesturing that, like I can feel this like dense energy that would be like the darkness. And then when I speak of what I do get to do, I feel so much more expansive, like even just doing this Mm -hmm. little demonstration to you right now. So that would be a, a, a huge thing. If there's anybody that's, um, you know, and I know you talk about a variety of different things on your show. So this could apply to like addictive behavior or just mental health in general, mindset changing. Uh, yeah, I think it's important to, uh, you know, your, your, you know, your quality of thoughts is your quality of emotions, your quality of emotions, your quality of life. Like it, it starts mm-hmm. with your thoughts and then it just flows outwards after that. So I wanted to mention that as well. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I, I feel like that leads perfectly into what are some words of wisdom that you have? Ooh, yes. Yeah. I always love being put on the spot. The words of wisdom. So this is the one I usually run with. Um, actually, I got a couple of quick, quick little things. This one is the one I usually run with, though, is, um, you know, when you're when you're feeling, you know, uh, like alone or feeling the need to isolate. And this, again, could be to many different topics that you've covered on your show, mental health, but I'm going to speak to addiction. Where are you feeling? Like I, I did a lot of drinking alone. I did a lot of uh, viewing my problem as though, you know, yes, it is an addiction problem. So that's on the broad strokes, but the nuance of my addiction, certainly I was, you know, by myself, nobody felt like way I did, which, you know, partially true perhaps. Uh, but the fact is that, uh, you know, a lot of these stories that I thought were unique to me, a lot of the, uh, you know, alone drinking stories and like, oh, the lines that I would cross that I was so like enrobed in shame and just, I, I couldn't even imagine telling anybody about the minute I started telling somebody about it. It was like that shame just had a permission to convert into like laughter or crying or whatever it may ended up being. So that's what I'm getting at is like the connection piece, the, the ability to find somebody that you can authentically, and that was the second part I wanted to get into authentically. So authenticity to me, and I want mentor of mine put it this way. So, you know, I'll give him credit for it is the, the context that creates the ability to be authentic is the feeling of safety. So when I got into a, like a support room, uh, I felt immediately safe and I was able to just, my persona just melted away. This like ego, mm-hmm. this, uh, this, uh, persona that I would filter my, my, you know, my, my phrasing through like the people pleaser persona essentially was gone. It dropped and I, I can't explain it otherwise than like a huge spiritual, just boom, here we go. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was. My first meeting I went to, I had this like shift and there was that connection. And I remember like doing a share where I was kind of like, oh yeah, I'm like, I did this. And it's barely creeping out of my mouth. And the person's just like, oh, that's like, that's my Tuesday morning. Like, and I was like, oh, like just hearing that back to me and realizing like, that's not even bad, man. You want to hear a bad story? And then it's like, it, there's some humor uh, and just acknowledgement and realization that I am truly not alone. And there, like, there is a share 
and there can be some humor to it because, mm-hmm. you know, yes, I did some damage to myself, but it's in the past. And what better way than to like convert shame and dissolve it and resolve it and get it out of your body than have a good laugh about it, right? So, and that's from somebody that can understand you and again, that authentic uh, side of you. And the final this note that I like to say is like, when you're talking about being authentic, my way of f- phrasing it is, so authenticity to me is if I'm just speaking like just straight from my heart and it's just like straight out, right? So if I have a persona or like an agenda or my ego catches it, it's like this force field that's like in between my heart and me speaking to you. And that's mm-hmm. when it kind of gets divergent or distorted or I speak ambiguous or I'm speaking something, you know, that I mean, you know, there's a subtext to it. I'm speaking in riddles, right? I'm not speaking truthfully to you. I'm not being my true self to you. So mm-hmm. that is my interpretation of authenticity is like you have to be feel safe. The persona can drop and you can speak straight from your heart without any kind of like divergent or distortion or anything mm-hmm. else that you put on it. So those are my, my words of wisdom or my wisdom as I, <laughs> as it may be. I, I dig it. And I, I feel like they are very helpful. Now, I, up next is like, tell us a bit about how people can reach out to you. Yeah, I would like to pause because we didn't really get to have a chance on bringing this up as much in the episode about how you're starting to give back after you've become alcohol free and like what you were doing in July and, and how to reach out to you. So please include all of that. (laughs) I will. Yeah. Thanks. And I'll try and be as concise as possible. I'm very enthusiastic about it as you can imagine. So yeah, as you mentioned, thanks for the opportunity to do this, by the way. Uh, yeah, I am. I'm at that stage where like, okay, if you ever heard of the hero's journey, uh, you know, it's like you go through the stage of like, okay, you reach the calling, you realize you got to change. And then you do the, like the dark night of the soul, I believe it's called where you do this, like all this inner work. And then you come out in phase three is you come back to society as it were, and you have to share what you've learned and you're helping others do it. So I'm at that stage. So, uh, yeah, I've started doing some sobriety coaching. I have a program called recovery roadmap and it's uh, so right now it's a, a 30 day challenge or 31 day challenge, depending on the month. And you can sign up for it. And it's like, uh, there's usually groups of you know six people. So we just did the dry July challenge. I'll just speak to that because we just did it. And it was six people uh, ranging from like newly sober to I had a, a gentleman that was 31 years sober. And he just wanted to do a little kickstart, you know, you know, a little, everything gets routined in life. So he mm-hmm. just wanted a, a little bit of a spark there and, and found it. And it was great. So we do like group calls, weekly group calls, uh, weekly Sunday events, which are usually an activity like a Tai Chi, we did yin yoga, sound journey, uh, group meditation, things of that nature. Uh, one-on-one coaching calls with myself two throughout the month and uh, daily check-ins, which was went over very, very well. Uh, it's just like a quick, you know, one minute, like film yourself on your phone. Hey, I'm going to do a body scan today. I feel a little bit tense. This is perhaps why I'm feeling that way. Just an awareness exercise and an ability to be vulnerable in front of, you know, at that point, strangers. And then by the end, it was just beautiful how everybody was connecting and getting on each other's podcasts and all these other different things. And very much, uh, I was, I was like a proud papa, even though that none of you do number of children but i felt that way i'm like oh my goodness it was like beyond my expectations of how everybody just like really gelled and it was a beautiful thing so you know that's a yeah 30-day program uh you know if you're sober curious or you need a kickstart to your sobriety it's getting a little bit 
a little complacent perhaps or just early sobriety and, and you're looking for um, some help or you just like accountability or whatever reason you may have, uh, the recovery roadmap could be a, a really good option for you. Oh, uh, and yes, where to find me. So recoveryroadmap.me is the website and my Instagram handle is also recoveryroadmap.me. So I made it nice and easy that way. And I have a YouTube channel and Facebook. It's uh, Matt Gardner Live. Oh, final thing, Beyond Recovery, my podcast. And I'm hoping to have you and you're bringing a special guest along. So Beyond Recovery is my podcast and a little uh, foreshadowing for your your listeners there. (laughs) I am and I'm very excited. And I am too. Thank you again for joining the show today. Last but not least, what is something that you're grateful for? Ooh, yeah. Grateful for. Hmm. You know, the first thing that came to mind is um, I'm working a lot on recalibrating my breath. So just breathing. It sounds super simple, but when I have been working on my my breathing and just being uh, aware of it, uh, it's like unlocked so many different things in my life. So I am, uh, grateful for the work that I've been doing on my breathing. I dig it. I dig it. And I would say that I am grateful for, it sounds weird, but, uh, cause you mentioned it kind of like just put context to my, my thoughts of the hero's journey mm. and, coming out on the other side and being able to advocate for others, especially when they're not able to advocate for themselves. That's beautiful. That's powerful. That is, that is definitely because I I really, really felt your story and being able to see people on that other side of just being so proud of them because they did Mm. all the work. Right. Just, It was just, you know, you weren't going to let them put a, you weren't going to put up with their bullshit. And I, (laughs) I very much value that. So thank you again, Matt, for being on the show. Thank you very much, Jen. Bye. Bye.